Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.36, Peace in the Ohio. Before we get into the episode for today, I would be completely remiss if I did not bring up the fact that this is our 100th episode. So, first and foremost, to those of you who have listened to me spend the last 100 episodes talking about the history of the United States, without, you know, actually reaching the United States, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this project, and knowing that people are actually listening to it, well, that really is a fantastic feeling. Now, I brought up back in episode 3.30 that I would be having a question and answer episode at the end of the season. Well, the end of the season is, believe it or not, at least in sight for me now. After today, there will be another five episodes in the French and Indian War series. Then we are going to have our normal two-part review followed by a retrospective review of the entire colonial era up to that point. I will take questions for the Q&A episode right up to the date of release for the second episode of our series in review. That will give me a solid month-long buffer to make sure that I'm giving you all good answers to your questions. So, if you have a question about anything that we have covered so far, the podcast itself, the Los Angeles Dodgers, or the state of pop punk in 2022, please send it my way, and I will do my best to answer it. I plan to get to as many questions as I can, so please get them to me. My email is on the website, and contact information will be included in today's episode notes. Okay, now, back to the frontier. Last time. We had spent our episode looking at the events that had been taking place along the frontiers in Virginia, and especially Pennsylvania. Although the frontiers were still not a particularly safe place to be, talks with Teddy S. Gung and the Delaware people at Easton had produced hopes that peace might be on the horizon. As we have spent a few weeks discussing now, 1758 was a time of change in the colonies. William Pitt's new policy of just pumping money into the colonies had really changed everything. Suddenly, there was a completely unprecedented war effort taking place in the colonies. Among these changes, we see Lord Loudon get kicked out and then get promptly replaced by James Abercrombie. However, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Just like his predecessors, Abercrombie's time in leadership was rough. He marched with his massive army to Fort Corralin, where he was quickly sent running by an army less than a quarter of the size of his own. Further north in Lewisburg, there was actual success as Jeffrey Amherst successfully captured the critical fort. This was followed up by a stunning victory led by John Bradstreet over the French at Fort Frontenac in late August. Today, we are going to focus on events along the Southern Theater's frontiers during 1758. This is really going to be the tale of two stories. We are going to pick back up looking at the diplomatic efforts between Pennsylvania and the Indian tribes in Easton. We are likewise going to spend time looking at the British offensive on Fort Duquesne, because in 1758, there will be an offensive on Fort Duquesne. Fort Duquesne is the place where this entire conflict began. However, following Braddock's routing on the banks of the Monongahela, we really do not see another attempt to take Fort Duquesne. The biggest battles of the war had shifted to the north, 
while the frontiers of Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania were left to deal with the constant Indian harassment that we spent our last episode discussing. Back in London, William Pitt viewed Duquesne as a critical part of the 1758 campaign. He viewed taking Duquesne as providing for two specific advantages. First, it was still a key holding for the French in keeping the British out of the Ohio. Second, Pitt had his sights on Fort Duquesne as a method to keep the French busy on multiple fronts. With huge expeditions planned in the northern theater of the war, Pitt wanted to prevent the French from being able to send men north to protect the increasingly exposed Great Lakes, and especially the southern St. Lawrence. The man who was tasked with capturing the, thus far, elusive Fort Duquesne was Brigadier General John Forbes. Born in 1707, Forbes was a career military man, having reached the rank of Brigadier General in 1757. Forbes was not a stupid man, and wisely spent a lot of time studying the mistakes that Braddock had made years earlier. What Forbes concluded was that Braddock made two critical mistakes, mistakes that Forbes did not intend to repeat. The first mistake was the road that his army followed was woefully inadequate. Recall from episode 3.29 when we talked about Braddock's expedition, that the road he followed was the same one used the year prior by George Washington. The road was far more overgrown and narrow than Braddock had expected, which caused the progress of his army to slow down to a crawl. The impatient Braddock decided that he would take an advance group forward, while most of the artillery and his baggage train was stuck methodically plodding forward. Doing this effectively reduced the strength of his army. This advanced group would, of course, be that group that was destroyed before reaching Fort Duquesne. Both Virginia and Pennsylvania would compete for the new road to go through their colonies, with Virginia pushing the use and improvement of Braddock's old road, and Pennsylvania advocating for a new, more direct path. After some consideration, by July, Forbes had decided that building a new road through Pennsylvania was going to be the best plan, and quickly work began. The work was going to be slow going in its own right, as men found themselves suddenly hacking away at the densely forested lands to clear a path to the east. A new wider road would help prevent so many of the problems that Braddock had. The new road was wider, meaning that there would be no need to dangerously split the army. The baggage train and the artillery could keep up with the main column of the infantry. The only downside came from the extensive work that came with preparing a new road rather than improving the existing road. Regardless, however, throughout the summer months of 1758, Forbes' men were hard at work clearing a path. Now, it is worth noting that this road was not entirely new. It did incorporate and improve upon projects that had been in the works for a couple years at that point. The second problem that Forbes was facing came down to his relationships with the local Indian tribes. Braddock utterly lacked any kind of meaningful Indian allies. Braddock was insulting, if not downright dismissive, to potential Indian allies, which would prove to be a very serious loss for him. Forbes clearly did not want to repeat the mistakes of Braddock. He was actually aware of the importance of Indian support, yet by the time that 1758 rolled around, that was much easier said than done. 
We spent the entire episode last time discussing the fact that relationships with the Indians along the frontier were in a bad spot. Sure, there had been some progress with Teddy Asgung and the Eastern Delaware tribes. They had stopped fighting. However, at this point, progress was more of a reason for hope than it was an actual advantage for Forbes. Teddy Asgung aside, there were still a whole lot of tribes out there that were very hostile to the British. For the job of retaking Fort Duquesne, Forbes had a decent-sized army to work with. His primary force comprised some 1,600 British regulars under the command of Archibald Montgomery. This regular army was then supplemented with an additional 2,700 provincials from Pennsylvania under the command of John Armstrong and 2,600 from Virginia with George Washington at its command. Much as was the case elsewhere, the plan for the troops under Forbes' command was that the regulars would handle most of the fighting with the far less disciplined provincials doing much of the heavy lifting of preparing for those fights. So, a task such as, say, widening and preparing a road that would head towards Fort Duquesne was left up to the provincial troops. The war effort in Pennsylvania took on a somewhat different look than we see up in the north. The most noticeable difference is that everything is going on later in the season. Whereas the attacks on Lewisburg and Corellin happened in July, we really do not see a lot of action taking place in Pennsylvania at the same time. Logistically, there was a bit less of a rush in Pennsylvania, if only because the campaign season could be longer than further to the north. However, beyond that, Forbes was well aware of the efforts of Teddy Eskung and the developments coming out of Easton. A new Easton conference had been planned for early October 1758, and with even the possibility of stripping away Indian support from the French, Forbes wisely delayed the offensive until after the conference. With the planned offensive now delayed until after the next Easton conference, Forbes decided that this would be a good time to go and do some reconnaissance of the fort, just to see what they're dealing with. This mission was entrusted to James Grant a major in Forbes' army. Accompanying him on this mission, he had a mixture of some 800 regulars and Virginia provincials. The plan had really been simple enough. Take a look around and learn what you can. Ideally, if Grant could capture a few men, well, that would be great from an intelligence-gathering perspective. By September 13th, Grant was in position on a hill within sight of the French fort. Things were going well enough. He had not been detected and was in a perfect position to get his job done. Unfortunately, Grant, rather than just doing the job that he was told to do, decided that this was an opportune moment to be a real go-getter. From what he could tell, Fort Duquesne was lightly garrisoned. If he could return from a reconnaissance mission and tell his commanding officer that he had just gone ahead and captured the fort, well, everybody would be thrilled. He would be a hero. Having decided that taking the apparently poorly garrisoned fort was a pretty good idea, Grant set his plan into action. His plan was to split up his army. A small group would make their way noisily towards the fort. Their noisy approach would draw out the French and Indian forces inside to confront the approaching British army. Once out and ready to engage, Grant would throw the rest of his men into the fight. The French and Indian forces would quickly realize that they had marched into an ambush 
and would proceed to either get slaughtered or surrender. And just like that, years after the crushing loss of General Braddock, it would be the British launching an ambush against the French to capture the fort where this entire war had begun. On the morning of September 14th, Grant launched his plan. His small contingent went out, beat drums, and generally made a whole lot of ruckus as they approached the fort. Unfortunately for James Grant, his reconnaissance, as well as his conclusions, that Fort Duquesne was poorly garrisoned, were not at all on point. As it turned out, the French and Indians inside were surprisingly well garrisoned. Upon hearing the noise, those inside the fort made their way out to confront the British. Very quickly, it was the British who found themselves overwhelmed and quickly getting routed by the defenders of Duquesne. With Grant's army now finding itself on the wrong side of a Braddock-esque massacre, Grant quickly threw the rest of his men into the fight. It was, however, to no avail. After a brief but fierce battle, some 270 British and provincial troops lie dead, nearly one-third of Grant's army. Grant, for all of his trouble, was captured along with several of his officers and sent north to Canada as prisoners. Grant would survive the episode and actually will be back as a major general for the British during the American Revolution. However, that is all in the future, and for the moment, Grant had just suffered a humiliating loss that ended in his capture. Forbes, upon learning of the affair, was not pleased. The British could handle the loss of the men. Grant had a relatively small force at his command, and despite one-third of them being killed, these were not the completely demoralizing numbers that we had seen with Braddock. Forbes, rightfully, was far more concerned with the diplomatic ramifications of Grant's actions. Forbes learned about the defeat right before the 1758 Easton Conference got started. Recall that Forbes had sent out a reconnaissance mission rather than an assault because the looming Easton Conference gave at least the hope that maybe an assault would not be necessary. Grant's plan was not just an example of overreaching by an ambitious officer, rather it was directly in conflict with Forbes' strategy. With the effect of Grant's failed ambush still unknown, the Fourth Easton Conference kicked off in October 1758. Earlier today, I had mentioned the fact that Forbes had two big problems on his hands. The first one had been the road that he was planning to take to Fort Duquesne, which he had decided on and was busy preparing through Pennsylvania. The second issue was the Indian question. Forbes recognized that Braddock had suffered terribly from his lack of Indian allies and was desperate for an alliance. Forbes, growing impatient with the Iroquois, attempted to bring the Cherokee tribe into his camp. This, however, would turn into a debacle of its own for Forbes. You see, Forbes had way more Cherokees show up than he initially expected, and suddenly found himself lacking anything for them to actually do. They began to themselves grow tired of just hanging around with nothing to do, causing many of them to just up and head back home. This would all accumulate in Forbes arresting the tribe's chief on accusations of desertion which, despite Forbes realizing he messed up, went over pretty much as well as you might imagine. The Cherokee promptly packed up all of their belongings, including the British gifts and weapons, 
and left town. The problem for everybody moving into the summer of 1758 is that, despite the statements from the previous year, not everybody seemed super eager to see an end to the fighting. The Iroquois Confederacy had agreed and acknowledged that Teddy Eskung could act as the voice of the Eastern Delaware. However, they were less than thrilled to see him out conducting diplomacy with other tribes. This would likewise mean that William Johnson, anxious to remain in good relations with the Iroquois, was not exactly helping the peace negotiations along. Johnson had remained aloof and had yet to provide anything in the way of actual assistance. In Pennsylvania proper, Governor Denny was frustrated at the slow progress and recognized that something needed to move. As was the situation with Forbes, Denny understood the necessity of Indian alliances and really was doing everything in his power to secure these critical relationships. It was Denny, in collaboration with Quaker leader Israel Pemberton, who ensured that there was progress being made on the Delaware Village in the Wyoming Valley. Denny likewise recognized that at the moment, their only real diplomatic channel into the western Delaware and Ohio tribes lay through Teddy Eskung, and that appeasing him was critical. As the summer months of 1758 slipped by, Denny and Forbes were sick of waiting for something to happen. It is here that Forbes decided that it was time for a power play. Forbes appealed directly to the commander of the North American war effort, James Abercrombie, for permission to conduct diplomacy himself, rather than wait for William Johnson. When the answer came on July 23rd, Abercrombie had agreed, though Forbes had not been waiting around anxiously for the answer and had already begun doing the thing. Forbes had probably benefited from the good timing here more than anything else. William Johnson had friends in high places back in London, and on the surface he did not seem like the best guy to cross. However, James Abercrombie was giving the thumbs up to just about anything that he could during the summer of 1758. When Forbes asked for permission, it was just weeks after Abercrombie had been routed at Corailin. He was desperate to save face, and much as he had given the green light to John Bradstreet to take Fort Frontenac, he would take success in the Southern Theater, or wherever he could get it, regardless of the plans of William Johnson. For Denny and Forbes, this was an absolutely huge deal. Finally, they could negotiate without needing to worry about dealing with a middleman. Teddy Eskunk had some success in getting tribes to at least agree to listen to peace overtures. With Abercrombie agreeing to allow Johnson to be bypassed, it meant that Denny and Forbes could treat directly with tribes who were willing to talk, rather than enduring the lengthy wait for Johnson. Indeed, members of the Western Delaware tribe were cautiously open to the idea of talking with the British. Among the Indians willing to talk with the British was Piscuatamin, an influential shaman who carried very substantial sway. Critically, he was a representative of that large contingent of those ever-critical Western Delaware. To open these high-leverage talks, Denny turned to Christian Frederick Post. Post had come to Pennsylvania from Prussia in 1742, and since 1748 had been living among the eastern Delaware and acting as a missionary. Post had learned to speak the language and enjoyed good relations with the Delaware tribes. 
he was somebody who the Western Delaware tribes could potentially trust. Piscuatamen, interested in there finally being a peace, did what he could and gathered as many of the local chiefs as would listen for a meeting with Post at Kuskuski on August 18th. If you're wondering where Kuskuski is on the map, it is located near Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania, some 50 miles to the north of modern-day Pittsburgh. It was there that Post made unequivocally clear that his mission was one of peace. The British wanted a return to peaceful relations with both the Delaware and all of the Ohio tribes. Apparently doing a sufficient job, Post spent the next several weeks bouncing from tribe to tribe, meeting with influential leaders and chiefs, preaching his position that the British were eager to restore the peace. All of this was being done under the protection of Pasquatamen, as Post was currently wandering around in territory that was not under British control. There were plenty of people out there who would have been happy for something unfortunate to happen to Post. His message was well received, however, though tribes almost universally had concerns about British encroachment into the Ohio. And really, this is nothing new. We have been talking about the French and Indian War for months now. But the Ohio tribes have always been exceptionally wary of the British colonists expanding into the Ohio country and seizing their lands. This is, of course, not an empty fear. The English have, since the very beginning, been pushing native tribes further west. The tribes wanted to get a hold on the matter and stop the colonists from moving their settlements into the Ohio. Post did everything he could to convince the tribes that the British had no plans to settle anything beyond the Allegheny River. He assured them that British military action in the area came only as a response to French incursion and pointed out that they were in the process of building Tedeskunk, an eastern Delaware village. Post let them know that the British had no plans to settle the region, and that rather they wanted an end to the fighting and wanted the restoration of trade with the natives living in the Ohio country. It is not exactly clear if the tribes actually bought into what Post was selling them. It certainly seems that they would have fully expected that the question was not if, but when, would the British begin pouring into the Ohio country. Pragmatically, however, they had other things that they needed to consider as well. The tribes could see the writing on the wall. The British were going to, most likely, win the war in North America. French control and influence over the Ohio country was already beginning to slip away. And they all knew it. If being on the winning side of the war simply meant delaying the inevitable rush of settlers onto their lands, losing the war came with far more terrifying possibilities. Well, the tribes likely doubted the words of Post and the British. It was increasingly looking like the British may be the best solution to a problem that carried no good solution. I also want to be clear that these negotiations, though showing some signs of progress, are not meant to be a replacement for the larger conference coming at Easton. Rather, what Post was doing here was working to get as many of the tribes to the table as possible in Easton. In that fashion, Easton stands as the goal of Post's efforts. By September 8th, Post, along with Pasquatamen, made their way back towards the English settlements to the west. This was a difficult moment for Forbes he was well aware of the objective for Fort Duquesne looming in his future. He was annoyed at the provincial officers 
and understood the critical nature of the upcoming Easton Conference. And although he does not know it yet, he was going to see Grant get captured while attempting to overachieve. On top of all of this, Forbes during this entire period was sick. Like, really sick. As in, convinced that he was probably dying sick. Overall, not an awesome time to be John Forbes. Beginning officially on October 7th, 1758, the Fourth Easton Conference was by far the biggest one to date. Denny was there, as was Francis Bernard, the governor of New Jersey. You had, of course, the usual suspects like Israel Pemberton representing the Quakers, George Krogan representing William Johnson, leaders from the Iroquois Confederacy, and Teddy S. Gung. Critically, there were over 500 Indians representing 15 different tribes. From its outset, this conference would take on a very different look from the Third Easton Conference the year prior. Almost immediately, the conference took on a more aggressive tone. The Iroquois, as previously mentioned, were not thrilled with Teddy Askung, rolling around conducting diplomacy and essentially pretending that the Confederacy did not exist. Though they had given him power to conduct diplomacy, the plan had always been that he would remember his place and would understand who was really in charge. The Iroquois were backed up here by Krogan and William Johnson, because by sidestepping the Iroquois, these two specifically found themselves on the outside, looking in. Having so many more tribes present at this Eastern Conference would likewise lead to significant conflict between the tribes, as so many of them had competing interests with one another. Right off the bat, this would lead to a significant confrontation between the Iroquois and Teddy Uskung. As the story goes, at some point early during the conference, the British gave out a significant amount of rum. This would lead to an unfortunate incident where Teddy Uskung became intoxicated and pretty much just went on a rambling diatribe about the walking purchase. The Iroquois, who, recall, were complicit in upholding the walking purchase, saw this as an opportunity to attack Teddy Uskung, and they were not about to miss such a golden opportunity to knock him down a few pegs. A Mohawk chief named Nicholas wasted zero time in reminding Teddy Uskung that he and the Delaware were a, and guys, this is their words, not mine, that they were a woman tribe, and that therefore they were subsequent to the Iroquois. The Delaware and Teddy Uskung were not an independent tribe. They were under the Iroquois, and they would be well served by realizing that. The walking purchase was then confirmed, and that was that. And just in case you think that this is some sort of spur-of-the-moment thing, and not at least somewhat orchestrated, please be aware that Nicholas, that Mohawk chief busy chewing Teddy Eskung out, also just so happened to be the father-in-law of George Krogan. Now, to be fair, Teddy Eskung's problems were far more serious than a one-night drunken tirade. His position was compromised before he even arrived at Easton. In fact, depending on the source that I'm looking at, his drinking may well have been because he was increasingly disheartened from his rapidly eroding power base. Alcohol certainly did not help his situation, but it alone was not the sole cause of his problems. Even had he remained stone-cold sober during the entire conference, he was still going to be undermined by the Iroquois. 
So what happened? Why has Teddy Skunk gone from flying so high to becoming so isolated in a relatively short period of time? Teddy Skunk's fall from power came largely as a result of that third Easton conference, the one where he seemingly accepted huge concessions from the British in order to pull himself out of the war. The Iroquois only begrudgingly accepted his authority the year before, and even then really wanted to make sure that they reined him in. He could speak for the Eastern Delaware, but conducting diplomacy with other tribes? That was something they were far less willing to concede. If Teddy Eskunk was looking towards the Pennsylvania officials for support, he was going to be sorely disappointed. There was already peace between Teddy Eskunk and the British. He had become suddenly irrelevant, as attention shifted to the tribes that remained hostile. Not to mention, it isn't like Denny was actually all that interested in looking into the walking purchase. Sure, he had said the things the year before, but that was just out of pragmatism, rather than any actual feelings or beliefs of injustice. If the Iroquois reasserted their dominance over Teddy Uskunk and controlled the village in the Wyoming Valley, and a meaningful investigation into the walking purchase could be swept aside, that really would be the ideal solution for everybody. The Iroquois had no interest in looking deeper into the walking purchase, Therefore, the Pennsylvania leadership was perfectly fine with them exercising dominance over Teddy Uskung. With his own position of power just suddenly gone, Teddy Uskung spent the rest of the conference moving between being disruptive, drunk, or most often a combination of the two. As a result of this behavior, even the Quakers under Pemberton abandoned Teddy Uskung. Despite having so much tied to them, Pemberton had no plans to remain staunchly loyal and risk the primary objective of peace to support the drunk guy at the conference. Much to the chagrin of Teddy Uskung, despite his pleas, the walking purchase was going to be allowed to remain. However, this is not to say that the Pennsylvania government was not willing to make concessions, because they recognized the need to appease the Ohio tribes, who were quite nervous about British intentions over the Ohio country. With Iroquois power reasserted, the Pennsylvania proprietors went ahead and ceded the land west of the Allegheny Mountains that had been sold at the Albany Conference. With this one move, the Ohio tribes were reassured that the Iroquois Confederacy ruled supreme in the Ohio country. Governor Denny stepped in at this point and, as a secondary move of reconciliation, pledged that in the future, the Delaware tribes would be consulted prior to any land deals between the colony and the Iroquois. In other words, negotiations on land sales could not cut out the Delaware tribes living on the land. The Ohio tribes would be free to do with their land what they wished, and would not risk having that land unceremoniously stripped from them. They would have a meaningful say in the land that they were actually living on. The practical effect of this was meant to stop the flow of British colonists from settling to the west of the Allegheny Mountains. For Pasquatamon, this was enough for him to pull the western Delaware out of the fight. For the moment, at least, Pasquatamon was satisfied that his tribal lands were safe from British incursion, which was about as good as he was going to do. It satisfied the Iroquois that once again they had commanded something resembling hegemony over the Ohio country. 
the British, in exchange for reversing the land transaction made during the Albany Conference, had secured peace from the Western Delaware, who agreed to stop fighting. The formal peace was reached on October 26. While it did not wholly end the hostilities along the frontier, it removed one of the driving forces behind the fighting. Teddy Askung would ultimately receive his investigation into the walking purchase. However, that term investigation should be used very lightly here. The Privy Council in London tasked William Johnson with looking at the treaty, which he spent all of eight seconds doing before concluding that it was a good treaty. Making matters worse, the building of that eastern Delaware village in the Wyoming Valley was handed over to the Iroquois, who, predictably, never got around to actually doing anything about it. The Peace of Easton holds a complicated legacy. For the British in 1758, it was a huge diplomatic victory. For the Western Delaware, it was a momentary victory, as they had secured their lands west of the Allegheny Mountains. However, as we are going to see, those promises that the British would not go pouring into the Ohio country would prove to ring rather hollow. That new road that Forbes was currently laying towards Fort Duquesne was going to prove to be a major artery that British settlers would take to flood into the Ohio country, leading to further conflicts down the road. The biggest loser at Easton was, with no real question, Teddy Eskung and the Eastern Delaware. For everything that they had done, all the effort that he had made, he was walking away virtually empty-handed. Teddy Eskung's brief position of power had evaporated. The Pennsylvania Quakers, who despite getting that peace that they so desperately wanted, would see their power to act as a mediator between the British and the Indians vanish. They would never again hold the political power or sway that they had so long enjoyed within the colony. With Pasquatamon and the Western Delaware now mollified, Forbes was finally free to move on Fort Duquesne. On November 2nd, Forbes and his army assembled at Loyal Hanna for the expedition against the fort. Forbes was facing multiple problems. Well, rumors had abounded that the fort was struggling because of the British blockades on French ports, there still was reason for concern. The ambush of Braddock years before and the much more recent rout of Grant likely were things weighing on Forbes and his men. To make matters worse, this campaign was kicking off in November, an especially late date for an army ill-prepared to make winter camp. Finally, Forbes was concerned that if he were to delay the mission any longer, he may never have the chance to take Fort Duquesne. His health continued to deteriorate, and by this point, he really was questioning if he was going to live long enough to see another campaign season. At Fort Duquesne itself, they appear to at least be seemingly aware of the massing British force. The fort was suffering from several critical problems. Following a minor skirmish in mid-November between British troops and the French allied Indians, the British had learned that Fort Duquesne had become extremely vulnerable. The Treaty of Easton had completely drained French support in the region. There were still hostile tribes to the British, tribes that were at least nominally allied with the French, that were still in the Ohio country. However, following Easton, all of these tribes had to take a very close look in the mirror and decide if this was the fight that was really worth having. For most of the tribes, the answer was no. 
They had no interest in dying in what was likely going to be a losing battle to protect a French fort. Forbes saw his opportunity and knew that it was crucial that he strike now, while the French were at their weakest. For the attack, Forbes would send three brigades, with Henry Bouquet, John Montgomery, and George Washington at their helms. They were to march in parallel lines towards the fort. In order to prevent a repeat of the disastrous march under Braddock, Forbes sent out additional parties to protect the flanks. In all, some 2,500 men were now on the move, towards what may have symbolically been the most important French holding in the entire war. On the evening of November 24th, the army was just 15 miles away from the fort. The battle was likely only a day or so off. It was there that night that the British learned that there would be no great battle. Advanced Indian scouts returned to the camp that night and informed Forbes that Fort Duquesne, the place where this had all begun, was currently on fire, having been abandoned by the French. The next morning, smoke could clearly be seen on the horizon from the still-smoldering fire, and shortly thereafter, the British would arrive. Just like that, after years of fighting, the forks of the Ohio were back under British control. This would prove doubly crushing for the French war effort, as those remaining tribes in the Ohio country that had remained loyal to the French realized that it was probably a pretty good time to jump off that sinking ship. Those tribes suddenly decided that peace sounded like a pretty good prospect, to which the British were happy to accept. For the first time since 1754, there was a fragile peace in the Ohio. Forbes returned with his army back to the east, leaving a small garrison to hold the ruins of Fort Duquesne. It was out of these ruins that a small village named Pittsburgh would be formed. While the Ohio country was at peace for the moment, the French and Indian War truly had changed the frontier dynamics between the British colonists and the Indians in the Ohio. Despite any peace treaties that had been signed, future attacks would not only occur, but would grow in their scope and brutality. This becomes even more profound following Pontiac's War during the early 1760s, a topic that we are going to lead off with next season. Regardless of the outcome of the events in the Ohio country, things had been permanently changed. Conflict between the frontier colonists and the Indians had taken on a far more brutal nature than they had previously known, something that is going to last far beyond the events of the French and Indian War. General Forbes was a hero upon his return to Philadelphia. Unfortunately for him, however, he would prove right in another matter as well. As it would turn out, he was not just being dramatic when he expressed concern over his ability to see another campaign season. On March 29, 1759, Forbes died. As a final note on Forbes, he remains a well-memorialized figure in Pittsburgh to this day. A main thoroughfare throughout the city is Forbes Avenue, which in places follows the path of the road that was laid towards Duquesne. Likewise, the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Pittsburgh Steelers would both spend better parts of 60 years playing in a stadium named after the man. It is also worth mentioning that for George Washington, this is the end of his involvement in the French and Indian War. His fight was now over and Washington was ready to go begin his life as a gentleman Virginia farmer. A little over a month after looking at the smoldering ruins of Fort Duquesne, on January 6, 1759, 
Washington married Martha Dandridge Custis, a wealthy 27-year-old widow. Washington, who had been given the honorary and temporary rank of Brigadier General by Forbes for this specific expedition, would have likely believed his military career to be over. Command over a revolutionary army is something that would have been inconceivable to Washington at this point of his life. When looking back on the French and Indian War in 1758, it is hard to see anything other than a completely game-changing series of victories by the British. Sure, there had been some struggles. Obviously, Abercrombie did not have a great time up at Karelin. However, aside from that, it had been victory after victory for the British, after so many years of disappointing losses. Amherst had secured Lewisburg and the entrance to the St. Lawrence. The victory by Forbes over Duquesne, combined with that hard diplomatic victory at Easton, had secured peace in the Ohio country and had given the British control over Lake Erie. There had been that unexpected victory at Fort Frontenac and the destruction of one of the most valuable stores in all of French Canada. William Pitt had reinvigorated the war effort in North America, and, except for a few hiccups, he had seen nothing other than success. As we move into the future, we are going to have ample time to explore how Pitt's policies would profoundly alter the course of events and the relationship between the British and their North American colonists. However, that is all for our future. For right now, these policies had proven to be wildly successful. Next time, we are going to jump into the campaign season of 1759. If the British had turned the tide in 1758, they were eyeing 1759 to be the fatal blow. With Amherst now in command over the North American effort, everybody was eager to see the British roll into 1759 with the singular goal of knocking the French out of the war in North America. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are all staying healthy and staying safe. If you have any questions that you would like to hear me answer in our Q&A episode, please go ahead and send those my way. And with that, I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we launch into the campaigns of 1759.